This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In today's show, we talk about primary candidates flocking to Concord, Governor Maggie Hassan deciding the fate of bills on synthetic drugs and concealed carry, and the path to recovery for those struggling with drug abuse. I'm Clay Wirestone, a columnist and editor for The Monitor, and I'm glad to welcome our politics editor, John Van Fleet. Welcome. Thank you, Clay. And our political reporter, Casey McDermott. Hi, Casey. Hi. So let's start off with the perennial New, well, quadrennial New Hampshire uh, story, the, the primary. So candidates have been thick on the ground uh, in New Hampshire and Concord specifically. Uh, we've seen Ben Carson, uh, Martin O'Malley, and Carly Fiorina around town. So, Casey, let's talk about what these guys are trying to accomplish. And, you know, it's still pretty early. So what's going on? So, um, you know, at this stage, you're certainly seeing uh, Ben Carson, Carly Fiorina, Martin O'Malley, and a number of others just trying to get to know the voters of New Hampshire, trying to get more name recognition. Um, With those three, I think it's particularly important, along with a handful of others who might not be as well known on the national stage, Um, Carly Fiorina, of course, has her own national profile from her term at uh, HP, um, but she hasn't had any political uh, career prior to this. And uh, Ben Carson um, is a neurosurgeon, uh, so he doesn't necessarily have a a political background to go on, but that's kind of one of his selling points for a lot of people. Um, And then Martin O'Malley was the governor of Maryland, uh, mayor of Baltimore, but he's still really trying to break through and just get, you know, name recognition with people outside of the kind of inner political circles. So you see them visiting restaurants, speaking to small groups, doing backyard town halls. In Martin O'Malley's case, he broke out an acoustic guitar and sung This Land is Your Land in Concord last night. So really anything they can do to kind of get get their moment and get people to say, hey, I want to know more about that person. Well, and Martin O'Malley, too, in, in particular, I think, was he was kind of anticipated to be the the big challenger to Hillary Clinton, but instead has, has lost a lot of visibility to, to Bernie Sanders. I think at this point, um, Martin O'Malley will be the first one to remind you that the candidate who is surging in June is rarely the candidate who is surging in January, as he told the group in Concord last night. So I think, you know, while there's a lot of buzz around Bernie Sanders right now, now I think his team and, and really Clinton's team for that matter are um, trying to focus on, you know, let's play the long game here. Sure. John? I found it interesting that um, among the candidates who were in New Hampshire, notably George Pataki and and also Ben Carson, they were bringing up Donald Trump. So here they are, Republicans on the ground, and they're trying to get attention for themselves. And how do they go about getting attention? They bring up Donald Trump because he is the ultimate attention getter. So it, it's interesting to me how Donald Trump, even though he's not in New Hampshire, can somehow be the focal point of conversation. Well, and he's really, I mean, of, of any of kind of the primary stories of, of the summer, he has really just sucked up by far the most oxygen of, of just about anyone, particularly his comments about um, undocumented immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, and I guess that's too. That's I mean, certainly that was George Pataki. P- Pataki, he was what was it? he was challenging him to a one-on-one debate. Yeah. So actually, um, this this has been going on for at least a week now. Um, these comments actually are not necessarily new in terms of the political news cycle. They were made during uh, the Donald's uh, presidential announcement mid June, um, and people began to kind of say, "Hey, you know, those are." are pretty offensive, pretty inappropriate. He ended up getting um, a handful of of corporate partners who've dumped him. A number of politicians were denouncing him. But George Pataki was actually among the first um, of the Republican candidates to come out and say, hey, this is unacceptable. We shouldn't be dividing um, the nation with this kind of language. Um, Essentially, what, what Donald Trump had said is he had characterized Mexican immigrants largely as um, criminals. He he said they're they're rapists, and I, I assume there are some good people in there. Um, and uh, those really are, are the the statements that that caught a lot of people um, a lot of people's attention. And um, so now you see a lot of other Republican candidates who are, are joining in on these um, efforts to repudiate Trump. Um, but Pataki had actually circulated a petition on his website um, asking people to ask the Republican Party to stand up to Trump. Uh, he rallied a group of uh, local reporters to his Manchester campaign headquarters earlier this week where he challenged Donald Trump to a one-on-one debate on immigration in New Hampshire and also presented his own policy ideas on the issue. So um, here, you know, I, I think... To be fair, he was offering up his own ideas, but this is also a way for him as someone who is also having a hard time registering um, with name recognition and and polling uh, to get more attention by latching on to these comments that are getting on a lot of attention. Well, and it's a complicated thing, too, because, you know, you have these 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 candidates that are trying to use Trump essentially, you know, to to get their name in the headline along with Donald Trump's. And yet at the same time, a lot of elder statesmen in the party and people who are running the Republican Party are very uncomfortable with with Trump's prominence Mm -hmm. right now. Um, I believe the RNC chairman called him and scolded him about it yesterday. Um, So. John, I mean, what do you think? In, you know, in terms of New Hampshire, I mean, how does how does talk like how does talk like this go go over? How does it go over? Meaning, like, is, are people receptive to yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I found it interesting. So, of all the candidates, Ben Carson, an African American, he could take on he could probably uh, take on Trump's comments comments most directly. He could he could really come out and and vilify Trump. But he didn't. I wouldn't say he defended Trump, but he he said the people are more are too PC these days and and therefore they focus too much on people's words and and vilify the words without ad- addressing the issue. And so uh, I think you know he his point was uh, to focus more on the issue of illegal immigration. So up here in New Hampshire, there's uh, there's very few minorities. So uh, you know, I'm not sure if people are are ready to vilify Trump's comments or if they are sitting there in their living rooms going right on. You know, thank God someone's saying it in those terms. You know, I think I think it's just it's it's interesting when you have such a such a, as you say, a really politically educated populace here in New Hampshire. You know, these are folks that have seen candidates, you know, a lot over their lifetimes, 
And yet, you know, his as I think we we mentioned in the last polling, you know, his I mean, the last podcast rather, his polling here has been very good. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, you know, clearly something's something's registering for people just, you know, beyond the the image. Yeah, there haven't been any additional New Hampshire polls to my knowledge since the last time we spoke. So it's hard to say whether this backlash is having any significant um, repercussions for him. Um, at that level, I do think that, you know, the negative publicity certainly cannot be good for him um, on any level, uh, you know, with the exception of the, the few voters who might see this and say, you know, he's speaking what I'm what I'm thinking. Um, but uh, I, I think also it's important to point out that there, um, you know, there are other candidates who have either personal, um, you know, they are of uh Hispanic descent or have family members who are of Hispanic descent. Um, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush come to mind, and both of them were um, very, very uh, clear in their denouncement of, of Trump's comments as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're both much, they're much towards, they're much more towards the top of the pack in mm-hmm. terms of uh, public notice and opinion polls. So let's, uh, let's move on here um, to uh, our, our second uh topic of the week, which is um, uh, New Hampshire Governor Maggie Hassan. Uh, she's, she's vetoed the budget, but she still has a stack of bills on her desk to go through, and she signed a bill banning synthetic drugs, uh, which were substances kind of meant to mimic marijuana, but they're sometimes far more harmful to people than a lot of folks to emergency rooms. Um, but uh, so she she signed the bill banning that, but she also vetoed a bill allowing residents to carry concealed weapons without a, a permit. So, John, let's just talk a little bit. What kind of messages is is uh, the governor trying to send here? Well, I, I don't think there's any surprises in what she's allowing to become law and what she's vetoing here. She's well, she doesn't always come out early on and say, I'm against this, I am going to veto this. She generally says, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna evaluate this, I'm concerned this is not in keeping with New Hampshire values. And that's her way of saying, I'm not fully on board with this. So uh, I don't know about you, Casey, but I didn't see any, any real surprises this week in terms of what she vetoed and what she signed. You know, the, the synthetic, the synthetic drug bill. She had pretty much, you know, that is a that was a big story. That was a big crisis early on. People were overdosing of these things. There were some, I believe, uh, some fatal incidences or some very serious illnesses related mm-hmm. to that. And she made that made it clear that that was a, a priority of hers to get this legislation mm-hmm. in place. Um, you know, on the other hand. In her way, she she made no bones about it that the concealed the constitutional carry the ability for people to carry weapons in a concealed manner without a permit she was she was not crazy about and so I don't think anyone was surprised when she vetoed that. Yeah, I um, I can't say that I was shocked by either of these or really any of the other announcements that have come come out in the last week or so about bills that are finalized or vetoed. Um, with the synthetic drugs one, as, as John noted, uh, she really, you know, made it clear that she wanted to have some kind of action on this issue. She declared a state of emergency because of the number of overdoses that we were seeing um, coming up on a year now. And I know legislators have been working almost as long on some kind of ban. Uh, one of the things with these substances that's difficult is that because they're created sometimes in these kind of I've had it described to me as by rogue chemists kind of 
putting together a bunch of different combinations and even within two different packages of what look like the same substance, it can be two completely different combinations. So it's difficult for regulators at the state level, so in New Hampshire and also at the federal level, to come up with bans that really work because the substances are always changing. So that took a while to iron out, but I think that you know the consensus seems to be that it's a good solution for the time being. Um, on the gun bill, uh, I do think it's worth noting that while you know I, I don't think anyone expected her to let this pass, she has been using it as a kind of political talking point um, in you know sending out emails saying that the gun lobby is going to come after her because of this, soliciting donations because of the veto. Um, so while it's still unclear what her path forward in 2016 is going to be in terms of whether she's going to seek out another re-election as governor or whether she's going to try to challenge Kelly Ayotte for the U.S. Senate seat, um, she's clearly gearing up for a political fight of some kind. Well, uh, John, you... Oh, I was going to say, yeah, if it, if it was somewhat in doubt whether she was going to face criticism over this, there was a planned rally out front of the State House on Saturday, which has since been canceled because they couldn't get the necessary permits. But when that rally takes place, you can you can bet there'll be uh, quite a few people there. And, and Casey, and you, and you bring this up. I mean, I, I don't know if it's just what I've been reading this, this last week, but I've certainly seen a, a number of articles kind of talking about the Democrats' prospects for retaking the U.S. Senate uh, in the 2016 elections. New Hampshire is one of the, the states that's in play there. I think the Democrats really only need to pick up four seats to get a, a majority. Again, four or five, depending on who wins the presidency. And so, you know, New Hampshire comes up. But it really seems like, at least in New Hampshire, so much of whether or not the Senate race is a race depends on whether Maggie Hassan decides to run or not. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the Democrats, regardless of who runs, are really gearing up for a fight and have been for a while to try to oust Kelly Ayotte. Um, at the same time, talking to political strategists and, and just political observers from a nonpartisan perspective, uh, Kelly Ayotte is a relatively popular senator, and it, it will be a challenge for Democrats um, in the absence of a Hassan challenge to, to get her out of there. Um, but that being said, I think that, you know, I, I'm not having one-on-one -on -one conversations with Governor Hassan, so I can't really say with any certainty what her plans are. Um, I think right now we're just in a kind of watch-and-wait mode. I know Politico reported earlier this week that Harry Reid was making calls to her to encourage her to run. I don't have any independent verification of that, but um, that certainly sent, you know, the, the political sphere in New Hampshire kind of chattering around, oh, what does this mean? So... I think we're going to have to wait another few months to find out, you know, what that is. And while there were a number of presidential candidates in Concord this week, there was another uh, well-known political figure who made an appearance on Main Street this week, and that was Paul Hodes. And That's he's right. there's much speculation whether he is going to be running against Kelly Ayotte, and he's got a new radio show going to air on WKXL on Friday, and so why would he come out right now with a radio show to just talk to people? The timing seems somewhat strange, or maybe not, if you're Maybe he your just desk. wants to share his musical musical tastes and interests with the public of Concord. Or maybe he John. just wants to talk about politics. Maybe. You're so, so cynical. I don't know. <laughs> He did, according to reporting done by my colleague, uh, Ali Morris, uh, he, his show was not necessarily... Um, 
focused entirely on politics. I believe he, he started by reading a Scottish poem in a Scottish accent and, uh, you know, discussed arts and, and music and things like that as well. So. Well, it'll 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 be interesting to, to see that, especially if you know if some if um, Maggie Hassan decides not to run, then you know who who is next in line. And, I mean, that's obviously why you look at Paul Hodes. Um, so, um, kind of in in other news this week, um, the Monitor itself we uh, we've uh, the paper ran a five part series about the struggle of those with substance abuse to find help and establish a sustainable path to recovery. While a lot of the series is kind of personal stories and maybe a little outside the realm of politics, it did raise some questions about state funding for various recovery programs and, and things to help uh, folks with substance abuse prob uh, problems. So, John, tell us a little bit about uh, what role the state is playing in this, this kind of thing and, uh, you know, could it do more? The, uh, the series really uncovered, for me, two key points on the funding aspect. One is that many of these treatment centers and many of these professionals working in the recovery field, they want to expand the limited services that they are that, that currently exist in New Hampshire. And one way they have felt encouraged is through the expanded Medicaid program. Rather than looking for state reimbursements, they've been able to get fairly reliable and more lucrative reimbursements for their services through insurance companies, by billing insurance directly. And so that reliable funding stream means like if they can now expand their services, they'll get the money to expand. The question mark about expanded Medicaid hovering over everyone's head because the discussion really isn't even going to take place until January. What these folks have said is all of those expansion plans are on hold until the expanded Medicaid question gets answered. So while New Hampshire has relatively few treatment and recovery services, they're not really going to get much more until this question is answered. The other main funding part has been the uh, the state budget this year included money from the alcohol fund for some of these services, and it's a little bit more uh, than has been used in the past, a few million dollars more. But traditionally, that fund, I think the first, the only year it's ever been fully funded, the alcohol treatment fund mm -hmm. was the first year it was created and ever since then a portion of it has been used into the general fund right. and so advocates say if there's ever been a need the time is now give us all the money give us all of the millions of dollars so that we can apply it to the services that we need to offer to help people right now both of those things are political decisions that are that the state could take some action on that would move the needle if if I remember the, the the numbers on this correctly, and I'm probably not, um, uh, Ali Morris, uh, our reporter, wrote a story about this last month, and I believe the number was it's five percent of the gross profits from state alcohol sales are supposed to go to this treatment, uh, this fund to help for treatment, and um, if it was fully funded for this upcoming budget cycle, it would be something on the order of $17 million. Yeah, I was thinking $18 million, and, and I'm throwing numbers out here, too. I think they included about $6 million mm -hmm. in the two-year budget, which was $3 million more than was initially proposed, the, the, the budget which hasn't actually been passed, by right. the way. Um, but there's about $6 million in there. And I think, yeah, the, the, if they got the big enchilada, that would be closer to 17 or 18 million. Right. 
But of course, that's just one of the perennial kind of criticisms of the New Hampshire budget is that there's all of the there's all kinds of different funds that have dedicated sources of revenue that are, you know, various bits of them are sent off into the general fund. One of the other things that I think um, is uh, worth noting is, you know, we, we spent most of the week looking at New Hampshire and then today. Um, I had a story looking at a model in Vermont where there's a system of recovery centers that fall under kind of an umbrella network that is funded in part by the state. And one of the things that kept coming up over and over again in my conversations with our neighbors uh, to the east, or west, excuse me, <laughs> um, was just the importance of political will in you know fighting this epidemic or finding resources for recovery. And while you know the centers by no means get um, are funded fully um, at the levels that they would like to be. I think that you know they there seems to be a consensus, according to them, that their leaders at the state house recognize this is an issue. This is something we need to fund, um, and have made a concerted effort to do that over the last decade or so. Well, and and Vermont in in particular kind of became a national kind of poster mm-hmm. child for this a year or so mm-hmm. ago, right? Yeah, Governor Peter Shumlin devoted his entire State of the State address to the state's uh, heroin epidemic, and um, that certainly served as a kind of rallying cry to step up their efforts. There were a number of things that were already in the works, but um, that kind of galvanized people to really step back and say, hey, you know, we need to figure out a more effective way of addressing this. I found your story interesting too, Casey, because it seemed like they were able to open these recovery centers on pretty short money. They weren't talking about millions of dollars. They were talking about $90,000 for one of the centers from the state. And these centers really were just resources, spaces where people could go, they could meet, they could have recovery meetings. But also one of the trickiest things about recovery is what do you do at nine o'clock if you want to go out or do something and, and hang around with people in a, in a drug and alcohol free environment and, and these these places can provide that you know you can go hang out with other people and and it actually helps you live a, a sober life yeah not all of them are open late into the night but I think um, you know that is one of the important roles that that these community centers play is just offering a sober space because um, as my colleagues have reported and as, as has come up in my conversations too, um, it can be really, really important for someone who's trying to overcome addiction to um, have something of an escape from the, the social circles that they may have been running with in the past that might have you know, led them to use drugs or encouraged them to use drugs and just breaking free of some of those social ties and meeting new people can be a really important step toward recovery. And um, I think just we, we should also credit here just today that um, one of the bills that was passed uh, here in New Hampshire and that Governor Hassan signed is actually a bill that was um, making it uh, so that if someone reported that there was an overdose of someone that they knew or that they themselves were having an overdose, that they would not be charged criminally in a situation like that. And that's certainly one of the one of the many barriers um, facing people who have substance abuse problems. And I think that's telltale of how bad this problem is. 
because right now you're basically making it a non-criminal thing for someone to make a call where someone else's life is on the line. And that's really the two things the state is doing, I would say most visibly, is offering Narcan to first responders, which saves lives in the cases of overdoses, and now is non-criminalizing people who make that emergency call asking for Narcan. But all the advocates will tell you, you want to fix this problem before someone has to call and ask for Narcan and say, someone is non-responsive and overdosed on my floor. The, the, you know, that is the end result, and you know, it's been well reported. We've got, uh, there was more than 300 uh, overdose deaths in New Hampshire from heroin and other opioids. Um, you know, that's, that's a record, and we're on pace to match that. Uh, Dr. Thomas Andrew, the, the state medical examiner, said his office, this has become a daily occurrence in his office, examining dead bodies from people who have died from heroin and other overdoses. Well, and it feels to me like, certainly in looking at this, the series and just hearing the, the news coverage and, and hearing listening to our reporters, you know, this is a problem that has just, you know, it's, it's a tsunami. Really, it's it's just kind of it's it's overwhelming the state, and it's kind of on a scale and to an extent that is just really difficult to even think about sometimes. Um, and on that cheery note, uh, <laughs> let's um, move on to uh, the uh, a little bit of a final segment here, and let's try some predictions for this uh, or um, uh, prognosticating for the upcoming week in New Hampshire politics. I'll ask. Uh, Casey and John, what they're looking forward to, what they think might might happen uh, this this next week. So, Casey, well, why don't you go first? So, we uh, big surprise here. We will be seeing more presidential candidates coming through our fair state. Um, I believe the first one will be Ohio Governor John Kasich coming through on Monday, and then uh, not far, but well, you know, later in the week, I think on Thursday. Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin will be making a visit, and that will be on the heels of his presidential announcement a few days earlier. Um, he's been one of the the few who has not yet formally entered in the race, though he's been speculated or his uh, run has been widely speculated for a while, and he's considered by many to be potentially one of the front runners once he is in. Um, John Kasich is interesting. He hasn't been as uh, high profile necessarily as some of the other Jeb Bushes, Marco Rubio's, Scott Walkers of this year. But uh, talking to some people in New Hampshire, they have uh, told me that they think he could be potentially a dark horse here. He has the ability to appeal to kind of the more moderate electorate. He is willing to kind of call out or break free from the party line on issues like Medicaid expansion, which um, some say might make him uh, perhaps more appealing in a kind of you know, straight shooting, independent-minded state such as such as ours. Um, so they said last week that he'd gone to a gay marriage. Yes, already. yeah, <laughs> that too. Um, so he uh, he's expected to enter the race in a matter of weeks here as well. He's buying up some initial airtime, or his his um, the committee that's supporting him is buying up some airtime in New Hampshire. So I think you're going to probably see more of him as well. 
And John, any anything you're looking forward to this next week? Well, earlier in the show, you asked me what people think and uh, about Donald Trump and how res- responsive or non-responsive have they been to his comments. And I got to admit, I feel like I fumbled the answer on that one. But what I'm looking forward to next week is Donald Trump's coming back to New Hampshire. He's going to be in Laconia, so we will get an answer to that question. He's going to have a uh, campaign rally and then followed by questions and answers. So if you want to know if people are furious with Donald or love Donald Trump, we should get some evidence of that next Thursday. Okay. And uh, my prediction is that uh, we will be talking about all of this and more on our next podcast. So, John and Casey, thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Clay. Thanks. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to contribute some music for the closing segment of the show, right here, send me an email at cwirestone at cmonitor.com. That's cwirestone at cmonitor.com. I look forward to hearing what you have. Otherwise, again, thanks for lending us your ears, and we'll see you next week.